0: Okay, so we had to play that clip for a couple reasons. Number one, because Pastor Chris's wife is the one who sent it to me and asked me to play it. And so if we didn't, then he would be in trouble and they have to lead that marriage thing today and that would be terrible if they were in the middle of a fight while they led the marriage ministry. So we showed it for that reason. The second reason is that it looks like an awesome study. And uh, so if you're married or if you're going to be married, I would highly encourage you to get involved in this, and you can see Pastor Chris or Heather after church and find out how you can do that. As he said, it's over at the upper room at 1230, and uh, I think there's a workbook, but they have plenty of them, and they're happy to give you one. Um, And also, I will mention that um, if you're a married couple and you've never done uh, a tandem bike before, I do not recommend it. (laughs) Michelle and I did one on our honeymoon, and it almost ended our marriage, so. That's a story we'll get to. I'm sure it will come up at some point in a sermon. So uh, with that, uh, kids, you guys are dismissed. So elementary kids, um, preschool through fifth grade, you can head out that way. And then uh, youth group, so junior high, high school, looks like you guys are out as well with uh, Pastor Chris. And the one other announcement I will mention is for the Israel trip, what an incredible response. Uh, We've had, I think, just from our church, we have about 45 people at this point who are going. So it's super exciting. Um, So the trip has way exceeded what we had expected. We probably are going to be on two buses, um, which is okay. But we'll all uh, caravan around the country and gather together at the sites for the teachings. And they have little wireless headset deals so everybody will be able to hear Um, But all of this to say, if you're on the fence about whether or not to go with us, get off the fence and get in the I'm going with you bucket because we're at the point now where we're having to go to the airline and try to get more seats. And so if you want a seat, um, make sure to let us know that you're interested. Um, Jump online, put down your deposit. If you need a brochure, you can um, ask me for one after church. And we'll get you one. We'd love to have as many people go as possible. But if you wait, it may be that either we don't have any more spots or the spots that we do have are more expensive because the airfare went up. So that's my little Israel commercial for today. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 this morning, making our way through this wonderful chapter. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you might want to have a Bible just to make sure I'm not making stuff up. So raise your hands. And we've got, uh, so one over here, one over there. We're working on getting some uh, new Bibles that have a little bit larger print. But anyway, if you can uh, see if you've got pilot vision, you'll be fine with this one that we're handing out. So as they're doing that, let's uh, pray and just let's ask the Lord to continue uh, just to bless our time together uh, this morning. So, Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you for all of the things that you're doing here in our wonderful church family, Lord. We thank you for the different opportunities that we have to gather together and to encourage one another, Lord, and to be encouraged by you, Lord, through your word. And we pray even now, Father, as we continue our worship, Lord, um, we have worshiped you in song, Lord. We want to worship you as well with our obedience, Lord, as you um, just reveal that to us. Lord, your expectations of us, Lord, your heart for us, uh, in your word to us, Lord. So we pray as we go to your word that your spirit would be our teacher and that you would give us ears to hear what he would say to each of us this morning. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 30, work our way through all the way to verse 44. As I say, we're kind of, chapter 6 has been um, kind of a slow process. In Mark's account, we remember that Mark took kind of a bit of a break last week from kind of his chronological retelling of the life of Jesus, really to give us the details about the death of John the Baptist at the hand, remember, of Herod. It was that very sobering account just really about the dangers of ignoring a guilty conscience. We remember, remember Herod's conscience kind of was stirred, if you will, as he heard all of these reports of these wonderful works that not only Jesus was doing, but that his disciples were now doing. Remember, he had sent them out on kind of a preaching, kind of a, a, a ministry tour, if you will, uh, all throughout that Galilee region. And this morning, Mark's going to pick back up in the narrative, kind of the normal flow of events, and now we're going to see what happens when they return from that ministry. And what happens is a very, very well-known story. It's the account of the feeding of the 5,000. So that's the title of our message today. I know you're wondering, how do I come up with these clever titles? Sometimes they just come to me, and I... The feeding of the 5,000 is a very important miracle. In fact, it's the only miracle, aside from the actual resurrection of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's included in all four of the gospel accounts. And so I think that's significant for us. You know, that somehow as God looks here at his Bible and as he looks at his word to us and the different accounts of the ministry of his son, our Savior, Jesus, he wants to make sure that any time someone picks up the Bible and reads through the Gospels, or if they just pick up the Bible and read just one of the Gospels, that every single time that we will come into contact with this great miracle. Now that gets my attention as a Christian, and we're going to see as we look at this miracle together this morning that I believe that God indeed does have a very special message and a very important message for us in it, uh, just as it relates to our lives, just as followers of Jesus, So let's jump in. Let's look at this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. It happened up there in the Galilee, again, right on the heels of this ministry tour through the Galilee by the disciples. We're going to jump in in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6, where we read that then the apostles called the apostles this time, right? The sent out ones. The apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. So at the end of their time, right here come all the disciples. They returned back to Jesus. Now we're not told quite exactly where, but most likely it was probably back at Capernaum. No doubt they had arranged some predetermined time. He said, go out for a week or two weeks or three weeks or whatever it was and then come back. And so they all meet back together again and they start to share with Jesus and with one another just all of these miraculous things that God had done through them. Right, as they were out there ministering for him. Remember, they were preaching the gospel, they were casting out demons, they were healing people of different diseases and sicknesses that they had. And you can just imagine how their hearts, as they come back now to Jesus, they're just overflowing, right? I'm sure just full of what God had done, not just through them, but what he had done during this time in them. And I, they wanted to share all of that with Jesus. In verse 31, it says that he said to them, he said, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Now, I have to say, This is one of those verses that I really like in the old King James Version, because what Jesus says to them is, "'Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place.'" And I want us to make note of this verse, I want us to really make note of this thought, because Jesus here is, he's modeling something that's so important that that many of us have had to really learn the hard way. And that is that as the old saying goes, If we don't come apart, we'll fall apart, right? There's a very natural kind of an ebb and flow, not just to the ministry, but just simply to our lives as Christians, in which we have these times of intense service and they really need to alternate with times just as intense, if you will, of quietness and of rest and times of solitude and times of prayer and contemplation and really consideration of the things that the Lord says and does. So there's just this natural need for this refreshing that comes from Jesus, right? We each need to come apart daily. We need to come aside daily and have a, a quiet time just alone with the Lord. You know, his word commands that we need to come apart weekly for some sort of a Sabbath rest in him. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever day of the week that is for you, it should look different, it should be different than the other days of the week, right? You think here about these disciples, their time out here on this tour. It had been, without a doubt, an intense period of time in their lives, the intense demands that were made on their lives. Mark right there says that there were so many coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat, So here they are, they're just giving away their lives on every level, right? Emotionally and mentally and spiritually, physically. They had just been absolutely stretched. And I know that many of you know exactly what this feels like, right? And so just as excited as they must have been, simply I think probably from the pure adrenaline that was probably still sustaining them, Jesus knew what they needed was just some time of refreshing with him, right? Just some time to get alone with him, a time of quiet. And and I take the time with this because I want you to know that these kinds of times are not just some kind of a carnal, fleshly thing for the weak Christians, right? These are a necessary thing for all of us right, to simply look and to realize, you know what, I just need rest. I just need to kind of recover from what it is I've just been through here. Again, whether we're talking about a season of intense ministry or an intense trial that you've been through, or just simply some kind of a protracted period of sustained service, right, maybe it is at your job. Maybe it's an intense period that your family's just been through, but whatever it is, just to be able to recognize, you know what, I just need a chance just to, just to kind of regain my bearings a little bit with the Lord. And then to know that the Lord really does have those kinds of special times for us, just as he has them here for the disciples. Now, I believe that in this case, it was a time not just of recuperation but I also believe that this is the very beginning of an especially important time of preparation. Remember we've said as we've been tracking through Mark's account that Jesus is probably now heading right into the final year of his three and a half year public ministry. That first year we called the year of obscurity which Mark doesn't even record for us. The second year the year of popularity which we've been looking at in Mark's account and now finally we're heading into the last year which is often called the year of opposition which of course will culminate at the cross right with his death and then his burial and then his resurrection but it's now at this precise point in his ministry and and Understand, this isn't just like technical information that I'm throwing out there for the Bible nerds in the room, right? I think this is really important just to understand what it is we're gonna look at specifically today in our text because we're about to see a great change take place. If you were to kind of mark here in your Bible, you kind of will say that everything sort of pivots here at this point in his ministry. It becomes different with this miracle that we're about to see here today. And it really starts to happen because what we're going to see is that Jesus starts to move his focus more and more away from the crowds and he starts to place that focus more and more upon the twelve. Right, just to these 12 disciples, he's going to become more and more involved and more and more invested in really pouring into them and really the preparation of them as a group. And even with this big miracle that we're going to see today, right? we could even say in a lot of ways this is his biggest miracle that he has done to date. It certainly impacted more people than any other single miracle. But I think that what we're gonna see is that this miracle isn't really about the crowd at all. That this miracle is entirely about the disciples. Because the greater thing that I really want us to see here isn't just the miracle itself. It's not simply the feeding of this huge crowd of people. But what's really happening here is what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples about himself. And so it says in verse 32 that they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves as he's preparing now to get alone with them to start to do exactly that. Now we've seen this before, right? They're around the Sea of Galilee. There were a couple of different ways to get around around the Sea of Galilee. And the one of them was just to walk along the shore, and yet that was sort of difficult because, you know, brush and the fact that the roads probably weren't that great in many places. And so another way to get around, especially if you've got a group of guys that a bunch of them are fishermen, right? The other way to get around was simply to take a boat, right? You take a boat from one city to another city, or in this case, specifically, from one city to a place where there was no city right luke tells us in his account that this was somewhere in the region along the shore outside of bethsaida right up there in the kind of the northeast corner of the sea of galilee but this was a deserted place it was an isolated place where there were no people where they could just go and be by themselves, So they jump into this boat and they head out in that direction. But it says in verse 33, the multitudes saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities and they arrived before them and came together to him. Well, so much for their secluded getaway, right? And what a picture, I think, we picture here as we see the disciples and Jesus. Here they're heading over there in their little boat. And they just sort of begin, the people just begin to move as a mass, right? They are just running there along the shore, sort of tracking the disciples in Jesus as they head over in that direction. And this entire, all these people just with the hope of being with Jesus when he lands, wherever it is he lands. And imagine you're one of the disciples and you look, what are you seeing on the shore? It's probably looked like the shrubs and the trees were just coming to life and sort of moving along. I mean, This is a gigantic crowd that's assembling there on the shore. Matthew tells us in his account that we're talking about, he says, 5,000 men besides women and children. So we could be talking easily about at least 10,000 and as many as possibly 15 or even upwards of 20,000 people, right? If most of the men brought their wives, and most of them brought their kids along, I mean, it's not like they were dropping them off at Kids Park, right, to go out. So what does a crowd like this even look like? Well, just for reference, right, the San Jose Arena for a Sharks game seats 17,000 people. So we are potentially talking about a crowd that is that size, right? All amassing there on the shore. Mark says they're coming from all of the cities around here. And this is just as word that Jesus was on the move, right? The word gets out. And again, I think this really speaks to us as it has just again to the desperation and the hunger and just the sense of deep, need of these multitudes this is the dynamic of what's going on here and in a sense it's it's beautiful right as it relates to this desire they have in their hearts but this desperation where they they've come to the point where they recognize that this man alone right Jesus alone is the only one who holds the key to meeting our needs. But just imagine, right, now we've got the disappointed disciples, right? They're sailing along, watching this happen on the shore. And I just have to wonder how their hearts were sinking as they approached this deserted place, right, where they had expected to get away from the crowd. And now instead, they are facing perhaps the largest crowd that we've seen yet. It says in verse 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Now, I have to think that the disciples were watching Jesus, right? How is Jesus going to react? After all, he's the one that told us he wanted to get alone with us. And now look at all these people. And yet Mark tells us exactly how Jesus reacted, right? His response as he looks at this crowd, right, at this massive multitude assembling on the hillside. Imagine there's double, you know, right? There's no ground that you can see in that picture, right? But his response, it wasn't at all irritation with them. He wasn't disappointed toward these people. But as we've seen before, it says he was moved with compassion for them just filled with this great love and this sympathy toward these people and their deep and desperate need that they would go through so much just to come and to get into his presence and to hope to receive something from him. And he takes note of that faith. And I, again, as we've seen, and I think we're going to see again in just a couple verses, so often when the disciples saw these kinds of crowds, What they saw, they saw them in terms of the hard work that they were, right? The constant demands, right? Especially here at a time when they were just trying to get some well-deserved rest. And now all of a sudden that's interrupted by this multitude. And yet Jesus, when he looked at the multitude, what did he see? He saw every multitude as the individuals that made that up. He saw each and every face. He knew that there was a story and that there was a context and that there was a hunger and a need and a hurt somewhere there that needed to be touched. And of course, he cared so much more about the needs of those around him even than he cared for his own. And he knew that their pressing demand of him was just prompted by their great, great need. So we have this pressing need of the multitude And notice what Mark tells us. Look at the end of that verse we just read. We have this pressing need of the multitude. And notice what it is that Mark tells us that Jesus does to minister to them. So he sees this. They're like sheep not having a shepherd. End of verse 34. So he began to do what? To teach them many things. Right? As the true shepherd Jesus sees all these herding sheep and he can see that they're wandering. And they're looking for good pasture because they are definitely hungry. And he knew that what it was that they needed most, right? the most pressing need that they had was a word from him to help to set their lives and their hearts in order. He could see these people are just wandering aimlessly. They're without spiritual guidance, and he knew that the spiritual guidance that they did have wasn't leading them into green pastures, but it was leading them out to barren ones. Remember, at this point, up here where we are, most of these people are Jews. There would have been some Gentiles, but by and large, they were all Jews, and their entire religious system, right, the entire Jewish religious system that was in operation there at this time is one that had been so Badly corrupted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. All of them just misrepresenting God to the people. Twisting the word of God. Right, Not leading people into a relationship with God. But they just built up these barriers of legalism and ritual and religion. Keeping people at a distance from God. And so Jesus looks at them and he sees that their first and their greatest need is simply to hear something from God. Right? Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we think about our own lives. We think about those times when we have been hungry in, in terms of a spiritual hunger. Maybe a search that we were on before we came to know Jesus and realizing that nothing seemed to satisfy that longing until we found Jesus and until we discovered his word. Remember, we are at a point of absolute spiritual drought here in Israel at this time. 400 years of silence of spiritual drought. And now Jesus is the only one who is here who's rightly representing God and in such a dynamic way. And so it says he begins to teach them many things. Now, I just need to point out here that the idea of that word many is more than just a great number of different things. The, the sense of the word is that he taught them at length, right? He taught them for a long time. He taught them probably even beyond 1130, right? Which is just simply to say that I'm just up here week after week just trying to be like Jesus, okay? So, Okay, so here's Jesus, right? He's teaching them, right? The good shepherd, he's feeding the flock because again, what each and every person needs, that what they're most hungry for today, just as back then, what people are looking for and what they need the most is truth. So he's teaching and he's teaching seriously for likely hours on end. And we know that this went on for a while because look what we see next in verse 35. It says, when the day was far spent, see, way past 1130 when we finish. When the day was far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Wow, what amazing powers of keen observation these guys have, right? I mean, they are such a tremendous help to Jesus they are filled with all kinds of insightful information as if Jesus didn't know what time it was right have you ever maybe told God things in your prayers that you realize he probably was pretty well aware of before you tried to inform him I know that I have But here they are, they interrupt this Bible study Jesus is teaching to tens of thousands of people to inform him kind of of what time it is, just in case he didn't realize it's starting to get a little late. Now, it was probably about three o'clock in the afternoon, which is when the Jews sort of considered the day as starting to kind of come to a close. And looking around, they've got these thousands and thousands of people all out there listening to Jesus and watch now next now they're going to tell Jesus what he should do about it look at verse 36 send them away that they might go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat okay have you ever tried to counsel god be honest but don't raise your hand please right right the bible teaches that Jesus is what he's a wonderful counselor Right? His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the Bible teaches that Jesus is to be our counselor and not the other way around. And to get that backwards is really to take a considerable step in the wrong direction. Right? I think about what Paul wrote rhetorically. Right. Also quoting from Isaiah, Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Well, I have tried. Right? And I'm here to tell you it never, ever works out very well. Come to the Lord and say, Oh, no, Lord, this is a deserted place. And he goes, Wow, Bill. Where do you come up with this stuff? You know, like, I'm not sure what I would do without you, Bill, as I'm trying to rule the universe here. You are a great help to me, right? So here we've got these very finite disciples giving counsel to an infinite God. Now, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They may have had pure motives. They may have been trying to just help Jesus out. I mean, there is nowhere, anywhere around here to get any food right, the nearest in and out was 2,000 years away, right? They may have been really concerned about the well-being of this crowd. They may have been concerned that the crowd was getting hungry, or more likely, they were worried because what? They were starting to get hungry, right? If we're really being honest here, the disciples' heart was more like, send them away, we're weary, but Jesus' heart is always what? Come to me, all of you who are weary, all of you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. And certainly I know that we can all relate to the disciples, but oh, how we long to be more like Jesus. And Jesus is always going to try to help us to do that, he's never gonna miss out on an opportunity to develop that in us. So look what he does next, right? The disciples say, send them away so they can get something to eat. But he answered, verse 37, and said to them, you give them something to eat, right? He says, you saw the need, why don't you fill the need? And in the original language, again, this is a command. Jesus isn't just speaking conceptually here, He says, you do this. Because at this point, he is about to really drive home a major point and a key lesson in their life. Now, just imagine what they must have thought when he gave them that order. right? You give them something to eat. Now, to their credit, again, in the other accounts of the story, what we see is that the disciples really gave this some thought they really worked hard to try to figure this out, right? John tells us that Philip started to sort of do some calculations, right? John also tells us that it's Andrew who started to look around for what food might already be there on scene. And you can just imagine kind of these hushed conversations that the disciples were having amongst themselves as they reasoned through all of their options. And it's only after... They've done that, they come back, this is their response. So this gem of a response in verse 37, he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? So by Philip's calculations, it would have taken a minimum of 200 denarii, right? To even begin to buy enough bread So that each person could get even just a morsel. Now remember, a single denarii, or denarii, whatever, is a day's wage for a worker. So we are talking about 200 days wages, right? We're talking about eight months of work. And so Philip basically is saying, look, even if we did have that much money, which they didn't, And even if we could go to a village and just try to buy bread for this crowd, we wouldn't even be able to buy enough bread except just to give each person, just to kind of taunt them, right? But nothing that would ever satisfy their hunger. And remember, it's at this point, John tells us, that Andrew steps up and he says, hey, look, there's this kid over here who's got a lunch, Right? His mom had sent with him this lunch as the kid said, hey mom, the rabbi's in town, I'm going to go find him. And she says, okay, at least take a lunch along with you. Right? And this little lunch at least had some bread in it. Verse 38, it says, but he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Now, this is just getting even more absurd. And understand, we're not talking about five huge loaves of beautiful French bread. We're talking basically about five pieces of pita bread. And the fish, what some have suggested, may have even been sardines. Right, they were certainly some kind of dried fish. And yet, what does it really matter? Right? They could have been two king salmon. They could have been two huge bluefin tuna. But they, they're nowhere near having enough food to even start to feed these people. Right? Any way you slice it, they just don't have enough. And you have an impossible situation here. Any way you slice it. Did you guys get that? Did you see that was good, right? At least worth something, right? This is all we've got, Jesus, right? This is all that we can come up with. This whole situation is way beyond what we're capable of. And so I think as we imagine this scene and all the different information that the different gospels give us, we just get this sense that the disciples are sort of squirming here. I mean, they are really working hard, just racking their brains for how they can possibly meet this command. And I think, as I read it, that one of the beautiful things about the passage is that Jesus is just sort of silent as they do it. He just lets them squirm at least a little bit right not to be cruel right he's never cruel in the way that he trains us in our lives but he lets them squirm a little because he's just driving home this very very big lesson in their lives this very big lesson in christian ministry and a very big lesson i think an even bigger lesson just in our own christian living so he lets them sort of squirm a bit just so they can come to terms with the reality that they have nothing left to give. Right? They are out of everything here. They have no time. Right? They have no money. They have no food. The only thing that they have is this overwhelming need. And I know that we have all been right where they are. Whether it is in ministry or more likely in our relationships or in our finances or as it relates to our schedules, we simply do not have enough in any area to meet the needs that are all around us, right? We have nothing left to give. And I'm at least comforted by the fact that even the great apostle Paul, he knew this situation and he knew it well. Remember when he writes to the Corinthians, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about the fact that they were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Right, what a portrait, right, of just not having what we need emotionally or physically or relationally, even spiritually, where we are just tapped out and completely out of bandwidth. We're out of margin in our lives. We can't meet the needs of our lives. And yet somehow Jesus seems to be saying nothing. And then finally, it's Matthew in his account who tells us the way that Jesus finally breaks the silence, right? In response to them telling him what they had, right? They've got these five pitas and these two little smoked fish. And Jesus says to them in Matthew 14, 18, it says he said, bring them here to me. And they did. And this is in many ways the entire point of this passage. Now, if you haven't read to the end of the story, I'm about to spoil it for you because Jesus is about to feed all of these 15 to 20,000 people with just these five little loaves and these two little fish. That didn't surprise anybody, did it? After all, it is called the feeding of the 5,000, right? But as we said before, the great lesson of the passage isn't actually that Jesus is able to feed these people. The great lesson of the passage for our lives, and the great lesson it teaches us as his disciples, right? It answers the question, how do we handle the impossible that each and every one of us will all face as Christians? Right, those impossible things that every single one of us will come up against us, just as we are simply trying to live a life of simple faithfulness to the word and the calling God has on our lives as Christians. Because you know that every one of us that tries to live that kind of a life, we're gonna hit the impossible right, impossibilities in terms of our human resources and our emotional resources, intellectual, material, financial resources. We're going to hit those times, every single one of us, where just like the Apostle Paul, we can say that we are burdened beyond measure and above strength, and maybe even for some of us to the point where we've even despaired of our very lives. And this passage teaches us about what to do when we hit those kind of times. And that is that we are just simply to obey the word of God in whatever situation we are facing. Whatever that impossibility that we're up against, we're to take and just put our five little loaves and our two little fishes into his hands. Right, Just give him what we have. Right, When we have nothing left to give, we need to give Jesus what we do have, however feeble and little it seems. And then we simply trust him for the miracle to meet the need out of our lack. Right? Trust him to do the impossible. Trust him to do whatever it is that needs to happen now in our situation. It's so important, first of all, that we notice when Jesus does the miraculous in our lives, he will always begin with whatever it is that we already have. Even when that seems to just be laughable, right? Five loaves and two fish would have barely been enough, maybe for one person, possibly two people, if they didn't eat very much, right? And yet, even though the amount was tiny, Jesus still started with what they had, but they had to give all of it to him. And they had to give it all to him just by faith because he said so. You know who had the most faith in this entire story? That little boy who just gave his lunch away, right? He was the only one out there who was prepared. And he just gave this willingly to Jesus. Right? The disciples, they didn't know at this point what Jesus was about to do because they haven't read to the end of the story either. Right? The only thing they had to offer him was their obedience and their absolutely insufficient resources. And that's the key. Because as I think about this passage. So, you know, when the pastor stands up here and they say, oh, you know, take your five loaves and your two fishes and just give them to Jesus. Right. Well, I hear that and I can understand that to a degree. I can understand, okay, give him my resources, I need to give him my life and, and all of that kind of stuff. But if I'm like you, I still can't get my mind around what that looks like practically. Right, what does it really look like for me to give him my five loaves and my two fishes so I can see him start to do these miraculous, supernatural things in my life? And I think that the answer to that question, how do we put our life and how do we put this situation into his hands, is that we need to do it just like the disciples did it. And how did they do it? Obedience. Simple obedience. Because... Even when we have nothing left to give, what we do have to give is our obedience. Right? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Bring them here to me. Right? That wasn't their clever idea. That was his command. And as they did, all that they did is they came and they obeyed what he told them to do in this particular and unique situation. And when we get our lives and our needy sorts of situations right into Jesus' hand, right as we just simply start to surrender ourselves to him through our obedience, right as we learn from the Bible what it says that a Christian is supposed to do in this particular kind of situation that we find ourselves in, and then when we actually do that in that situation, as I just obey what it is that I know that the Bible is telling me to do, that's the point that I'm now putting my five loaves and my two fish, putting all that I have into his hands. And then once I've done that, then I wait by faith. And I watch by faith. And I walk by faith. And I can trust at that point. That now Jesus is going to do whatever it is that has to be done in this situation to accomplish his will in my life and to bring glory to himself. Again, the disciples had no idea what Jesus was about to do. But they did what he asked. And now watch, they just keep doing what he tells them to do. Look at what we read next. Look at the next couple verses. Verse 39. It says, Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. Okay, great, right? Now we've got the multitude at least organized, right? They are orderly, but we still don't see any food. Now, we read this in two verses, but can you imagine how long it would have taken to organize ten to 15,000 people all sitting down on green grass in hundreds and fifties? And really, in the scheme of things, what did it matter how they were sitting? Well, it did matter because that's what Jesus told them they should do. And they just did it, trusting him all the way that he was about to work. And, And again, I want us to think about this kind of a dynamic in any kind of a context in our lives, any situations where we're facing the impossible and we have no other choice but to give him those five loaves and those two fish, give him our obedience, and then just keep doing what he says we're supposed to be doing and wait on him for the miracle whether it's in a difficult marriage, or whether we're dealing with a challenging child, or you're involved in an impossible situation where you work or where you live. right? We know something has to change here. There needs to be some sort of a breakthrough in this situation, but the only thing that we have now to contribute is just our obedience to his word and our faith. We can't change the other person. right? We can't fix our husband. Right? We can't fix our child. We can't fix our boss. We can't fix our friend. But we can do exactly what God's word says that we should do in that situation. And then by faith, we can trust him to bring some kind of a miracle that needs to be brought alongside these very limited resources that we have. And then we walk by faith and we just trust him to do what he alone can do. Can I tell you that he is always worthy of our faith, right, as we live this life of faith and as Paul said that we walk by faith because we know and we've experienced, right, the Christian life is just one long string of being faced with the impossible, being faced with trials and circumstances and spiritual warfare, all of it that is way beyond any resources we have, because what they do is they drive us and they force us to look to him for the miracle, right? So now they've got everybody all sitting down. They're decently in order. They're in these rows. They're on this green grass, which, by the way, is how we know it's probably spring around the time of the Passover, which would put it one year from the following Passover where, when the crucifixion would take place. So we've got these thousands and thousands and thousands of people sitting down. Now you've got every pair of eyes out there. And what are they doing? They're looking at Jesus. They're now able to see Jesus very clearly, exactly what it is that he'll do next. And I would bet you that there was no one that was more interested in exactly what that would be than who? The disciples. The disciples. They wanted to know what was about to go down here. Verse 41 says, And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke the loaves. Right? If Jesus says grace, we certainly should, right? Before a meal. He blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. And so they ate and were filled. Now, none of us should be surprised at all at these verses, right? Not only did Jesus provide miraculously, but he provided in abundance. That word there that Mark uses, fulfilled, literally it means glutted. We're talking Thanksgiving dinner, loosen your belt, like push back from the table, kind of stuffed. Right? If anybody there was still hungry, it was either because they refused to eat what Jesus gave them or because the disciples didn't distribute the food to everybody the way that they should have. There was plenty of food there. But I think this reminds us here, again, of something else I think is so important about how Jesus works, right, in our lives and through our lives as followers, and specifically, I think, the way he works the miraculous. You've probably noticed this in your own life. But Jesus, he will always do what he alone can only do. But what? He will not do for us what we can do for ourselves. Jesus is not trying to develop weakness people as he develops Christians. So there's kind of this line almost that he draws. Nobody else can do this miracle that he does, but they absolutely can serve and they can partner with him in what he's doing. He's not going to simply go out and make the food magically appear in people's hands, right? It was up to the disciples to do that. And that's all that they had to do, right? This should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, because that's what I do. Right? The miracle of the multiplication happened where? It happened in the hands of Jesus. Right? It happened supernaturally. It also, interestingly, it happened there linguistically. Look at verse 41. This is important, I think, also super interesting. Most of the verbs in that verse are single action verbs. Right, He had taken single action. He looked single action. He blessed single action. He broke single action. But then strangely, when we get to the word gave, where it says that he gave these broken pieces out to the disciples, it switches tenses to that imperfect tense. Remember that one? That's the one that means he continued to give, right? He just kept on giving this bread out to the disciples to give out to the people. Right? There's no deep explanation of how this miracle happened. And yet the tenses demand that this miracle is taking place somehow right in Jesus' hands. He just continues to keep giving it out. Right? As he broke it, it is literally multiplying there so that there's enough for everyone. And the very first thing I think this is, is such a beautiful picture of the gospel itself. A beautiful picture of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross as his body was broken for us, right? Broken one time, but then that provision of that single sacrifice has then multiplied and it's sufficient to be given out to the entire world. Peter says that Christ also died for sins once for all, right? The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God we can't help but wonder as the disciples looked back many years later on what happened here how they must have then understood what they just saw happen this beautiful picture of how the Savior would give himself as the bread of life which in John's account is the very next sermon that Jesus gives he gave himself as the bread of life to be passed out to a starving world his body would be Broken so that we would all, you know, even the the words that Mark uses here, don't they remind us of communion? Don't they remind us of the Lord's Supper that commemorates his death? As it says in Luke 22, 19, that taking the bread, he blessed it, broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Eat it in my memory. So first of all, I think such a beautiful picture of what was to come just one year from this point on the cross. But it's also in this moment, right, in this miracle, in this field, understand this is nothing less than an act of creation. right? Jesus is creating something that wasn't there because that's what Jesus does. And that's what only Jesus does. And that's what Jesus wants to do. And that's what he is able to do in each one of our lives as we simply trust in him. Right. So when we have nothing left to give, we give him what we do have. And then Jesus miraculously creates the things that we need. We give him what little we have and he makes it into so much more. We just give him that simple obedience. We follow it up with our faith and he makes it right. He keeps on making it into something that is ultimately so satisfying and so sustaining and just meets needs. And then he allows us to be part of giving it out all of the people around us who we know are starving for spiritual sustenance the idea here there's this beautiful picture that the disciples are doing as they're taking what Jesus gave them and then Mark says that they set it before the seated people and the word picture there is a word that's used to describe a household servant who would bring dinner into the master's table and set that dinner in front of the guests of the master, so again, understand the only thing the disciples were responsible for was to just set that dinner out before the people. They're not producing anything; they're just distributing it. Right? We're not manufacturing anything; we just get to distribute it. Again, it's never at all about our resources, what we bring to the table. It's simply always only about our obedience to simply obey the word of God in whatever situation we're in. And when we do that, then we can watch Jesus miraculously multiply that and there will always be more than enough. Look at just our last two verses here. It says in verse 43 that then they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 Now, I love this final picture here, especially as we consider where we started at the beginning of the story, right? Here, the disciples are gathering up the leftovers into these 12 baskets. And it's interesting, the word for baskets there, it's not like the word we'd use for a bushel, like a a big, you know, like a harvest basket. This is a special word for a special kind of a hand basket that the Jews would carry with them if they went out like fishing or if they were going out somewhere on a journey for the day, they would bring along sort of a picnic lunch, if you will. These are personal sized baskets. And of course, we notice there are exactly what? 12 of them. There aren't 13, there aren't 11, but there are exactly 12. Because each one of the disciples as a result of their involvement and their ministry in this miracle to the multitudes, every one of the disciples now had more at the end of the day than they had at the beginning of the day, right? As here we have the sun setting and the multitude leaving, and here they are now alone with Jesus, just like he had told them that they would be. But now we can only imagine that they were full, right? They were glutted and stuffed to the brim, not necessarily on food, but what they had just learned personally about him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus just fed these, you know, 15, 20,000 people and there is no mention of how the crowd responded to this miracle. In fact, the the reaction of the crowd to this miracle isn't mentioned in any of the four Gospels. And the reason, as we kind of mentioned before, the reason that the reaction of the crowd is never mentioned is that this was never at all about the crowd at all. Yes, Jesus wanted to feed the people. He wanted to physically meet their needs. But the big thing that's happening, it's not that Jesus was able to feed 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Of course he can do that, right? He spoke the world into existence, right? The big thing that's happening here is what the disciples learned that day. The big thing is what we can learn as disciples. And one of the main things that this passage really just continues to drive home, probably the supreme thing, probably the simplest thing, is that our greatest resource in any given situation that we find ourselves in is probably the very resource that we will most often overlook. It's the resource that we will only turn to when we have exhausted every other resource in our lives. And that resource, of course, is Jesus himself. Right? He is our greatest resource. And I think that all of us, as we try to walk with the Lord and serve the Lord in whatever capacity we might be doing that, but all of us, have we're going to have to deal, at least at some time, where God has called us to do something Maybe, again, it's in terms of the ministry, but most often isn't it just in terms of our own personal lives, right? Our relationships that we're involved in or the work that we're doing where he tells us to do something. And the very first thing that we do in determining whether it's possible or impossible, what do we do? We start to assess it in the light of what we can bring to the solution, right? We start to look at it in in terms of our own resources and our own intellect, our own ideas and our strength and our financial or our material resources, right? We start to count up our five little pita breads and our two little sardines. And then we conclude that something is impossible if he's called us to do something that exceeds those resources, And it's only when we get to that point, typically Jesus has to point it out, right, just like he did with the disciples in the story, but it's only when we realize that, then we start to understand that the greatest resource that the disciples had in this scene wasn't their money, it wasn't their ideas, it was just simply Jesus himself present with them. And the very same thing related to our lives, right? Where we can just come to the end of ourselves, where we are just there in a heap. We're saying, God, I just can't do this. This situation is impossible. But we get there because we haven't counted him at all as we've assessed our resources. We haven't brought him into the equation at all. And he is the very greatest resource we have. Remember the Apostle Paul, as he wrote, we said, to the, to the Corinthians in that, first, that second chapter of his first, or first chapter of his second letter, pardon me, where he said that he was burdened beyond measure and above strength so that he despaired even of his very life. That's a pretty rough place for a person to be. But then when you read on in the letter, by the time you get to chapter 4, Paul starts talking about the way that the presence of the Lord had changed all of this for him. And by the time we get to chapter four, this is what Paul writes. He says that we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. He says we are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. He says we're struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says this. He says, always carrying around in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, he says that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So it was the presence and it was the power of the Lord Jesus, which Paul found to be the game changer in his life. It was the greatest resource that he had. And so the importance then of taking that, right, giving Jesus that kind of place in our lives as well. well. And again, how does that happen? Very practically, well, first of all, it happens by me stopping that terrible habit I have of trying to tell God what to do, right? So if you're doing that like I am, stop it, right? Then it starts by simply putting what I have into his hands, Right, And then praying to him for wisdom and for direction and for those supernatural resources just to do this, impo- this humanly impossible thing that he's asking us to do. And then whatever it is that he tells us to do in his word, right, just to do that by faith and then take a step out in faith just based upon our belief that he has the resources that are necessary to do it. And then to understand that how this all turns out Well, that's his problem, isn't it? That's not my problem. I tend to make it my problem. But what is my problem? Well, my problem really is just to obey what I know that he has said in his word. To honor him by honoring his word and then knowing that he'll honor me because of my simple obedience to that. Right? But that's what gives him the great opportunity to do this great miracle through my life, which then touches other people's lives around me. But so often I think that we just talk ourselves out of it. We talk ourselves out of so much of what God wants to do because we live as though we don't have the greatest resource in the world already as a part of our lives. And that is simply the very presence of Jesus himself. Amen? Amen. So, Father, <laughs> Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we just thank you for the great encouragement that it brings us, Lord. The, the exhortation, really, that it gives us, Lord, about not only uh, the way you demand our obedience, Lord, but what really you can do with that obedience. And so we pray, Father, that as we worship you now, Lord, that you would just minister these truths deeply to our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who's struggling specifically in an area of their lives, Lord, of of giving that obedience over to you. Lord, I pray that, that they would do business with you this morning in the privacy of their hearts. Lord, that if necessary, that they would come forward and ask for prayer. Father, I pray that if they need someone to pray with them, that they would simply reach to the person next to them. And say, would you pray with me about this issue in my life? And so, Father, we pray that you would minister to us now, Lord. Help us to learn what it is that the disciples learned in this text. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the Lord. Amen. He's worthy.